Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You're listening to This Little Light, a podcast about falling in love with music, hosted by me, Flea, and produced by Cadence 13 and Parallel. Today's guest is my longtime bandmate, my brother, my friend, someone I've been closely aligned with since I was 15 years old, and I'm now 60 years old, Anthony Kiedis. That was the moment where I realized that writing songs was the most rewarding thing you could do, or yeah. that I, that I could do is like until we wrote a song, and that was like, yeah. oh my god, there yeah. there was no song yesterday, and today there's a song yeah. that'll just be there indefinitely. I really admire Anthony's perseverance, his willingness to always evolve and grow, and have an open mind, his work ethic his loyalty and devotion to what we do together in the band and as a friend, as my brother. It's weird for me to interview him, (laughs) considering like he and I have been interviewed together alone in various configurations 10 million times since I've known him. So sitting down with this and and starting to speak with him as me being an interviewer was just a, a strange dynamic. But It was a a really great conversation, actually really good for us to do it. For us, it's funny, like I felt like we both learned stuff about one another when we did it, and that was really beautiful. You know, in this conversation, we talk about him growing up in Michigan with his mother and family, and then moving to Los Angeles to live with his dad, who was a Hollywood wild man. And, uh, you know, he had a very unorthodox childhood with his dad. And um, just his exposure to the arts, to music, to himself, to finding himself in a, in a chaotic world with a, you know, he's got a pretty wild spirit himself and finding a way to harness that into his work and into himself and how that moved and changed through the forces of love and friendship and Hollywood. Today, for the first time in my history, I'm speaking to my longtime friend and partner, Anthony Kiedis. Musical partner. (laughs) Musical partner. We're not romantically linked. So this podcast is all about music education. Mm, Education. Education. Mm. And it's been kind of wild because every person's journey to being a musician is so different. You know, like I talked to Earl Sweatshirt, you know, and then I talked to... Patty Smith, and I talk, you know, you talk to these people that are all so different, have mm-hmm. such different ideas, and came to music in such different ways. And so I want to talk to you about it. Let's talk. Okay, so let me ask you this. What's your very first memory of being fascinated by music or hypnotized or drawn in? Or- so, yeah, that word education is so, is really kind of stuck out of your sentence there for me because I'm 
so not educated in the traditional sense. Um, just throwing that out there to come full circle eventually. But um, music for me in the very beginning was about hearing stories and moods and emotions. And it was probably, I can't remember the very first time I ever rocked out but or got moved by music, but Neil Young early, that was my first 45. And then hearing Frankenstein on the radio, like an AM radio that was next to my bed, and it probably was my alarm that woke me up to go to school in fifth grade or something, really shook me. I was like mesmerized. And it, yeah, it wasn't, I never listened to the, the instruments individually and thought, oh, I have to, you know, know how to do that. I just like the feeling. Mm. I just like the magical teletransportation to a different place in, in my mind or wherever. And then so many, it just nonstop from there. Like every time I heard music, it, it stopped me in my tracks, you know, yeah. like a Paul McCartney song or. Yeah. I know. mean, when I met you, you were already deeply fascinated by music. Fascinating. You were turning me onto music and playing me music. And you were like, this is the shit. We'd be like, <laughs> you know, like 15 years old, like getting high or whatever, and you'd play music and you're like, no, no, this, this. Mm. I knew that it was really important to you. It was. And, I, and to me that like, I mean, I guess it's just a matter of words, but that's education. Like you're, well, let me just ask you this, sir, just because I don't want to go too far ahead. Mm. When you're a little kid mm -hmm. and you're listening to Frankenstein, you're hearing you're mm. young, did you consider how it was made, like what they were doing, that there was a drummer hitting drums and a guitar player and... Loosely, so for some mm -hmm. reason that that didn't that didn't become a crystal thing in in my mind. Like I yeah. knew I knew there was a drummer, I, I knew that yeah. there was a guitar player, but it wasn't where I focused my attention. Like yeah. it was more on the energy that it was creating, and and how it made the people who heard it feel. Yeah, like I would watch my friends um, listen to the radio, and and I would see them change, or you mm -hmm. know what would happen to them, and. So I didn't analyze it. And yes, I had, I'd gotten on the path, but I had no idea I was on the path. Yeah. Like that was the beginning of the path, but I just didn't know. Yeah. Which was, which was great. Yeah. I didn't have to worry about it. Yeah. But then I saw people like you along the way, or many of my other friends like, oh, you know, I, I hear the trumpet and yeah, I, I want to know how to do what that guy's doing. Yeah. I remember like, like when I was a kid, before, because I just I started playing when I moved to LA, I guess is when I started playing trumpet. But before that, like I got into the Beatles, and I had the White Album. This was like before Walter, or just the beginning of Walter, and I hadn't yet, you know, had my awakening about just watching him play. Mm -hmm. But I just would I was sit there with my songbook and mm. listen to it over and over and over and listen to it, and just like it was so magic. But I mm. didn't. I guess kind of what you're saying, like it just affected me. But I didn't. I didn't know. Yeah, the White Album got to the kids. Like, it really did. Just a few years after it came out, we thought. I thought it was ancient when I listened to it. I was like, "Oh, look at this old relic." Yeah. But now I look back and go, oh, "I was only a few years old when I got into yeah. it." Yeah. <laughs> and so many feelings and so many dynamics. And yeah. So much. Yeah. The the next thing I remember about music was that it. Really made me want to dance at a very young age, mm. and and that became kind of my instrument of choice was the body. 
and my heart was affected like as i it woke my heart up and made me you know just feel alive but then i would go dance for the girl across the street and mm-hmm. then like i turned my body into like a musical right piece of resonance like you know yeah. follow the music how old were you probably 10 years old and i just i became obsessed with dancing were you self-conscious about it at all not even a little bit no it's the opposite of self-conscious whatever that is like flagrantly just feeling it unaware of caring Yeah. yeah and and that was really also a big stepping stone on my path to entering a world where i could actually be a part of making music or studying music or thinking about music in terms of creating music, mm. the dance kind of led me a little bit further yeah. down the path over and over again. And it was a way of connecting. Like it was a way of using music to connect with the girl across the street, like mm. dancing for mm. her. Oh, yeah. So it's a means of communication and it's music. And yes. you, know, you get to like, one, get into the craft of dancing, two, show off and hopefully woo her, three, have fun. Have fun and just wake up all those endorphins and, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's also, I, I met a, a chap in uh, Mexico once and, and we got into dancing and he's like, you know, my the tribe that I come from, our, our, the whole reason that we dance is to get the attention of God. Mm-hmm. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, if, if we're just, you know, milling about, we don't really have God's attention, but if we go for it and we start dancing, yeah. God will listen to us. And yeah. I was like, that's amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. Nice way of thinking about totally. Like, I try like I just you know, I think about like you saying that stuff and how it's related. Let me ask you this, like did you this is the, the tangent for sure, but you start dancing, you start appreciating music and the vibe and energy and you see the effect it has on people. Did you because I feel like like I'm always like wrestling with this thing inside myself where it's partly I just want to channel the most beautiful thing and like get in this place where I'm letting something beautiful happen. But it's partly like, I feel like I need to prove myself in the world. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I have to prove that I'm a worthwhile mm. person by being good at it. Do you have that feeling? Are you more pure about it? Or were you more pure um, about I'm, it? I'm constantly impure about most things, but I, I don't feel the need to prove myself. It's, it's one of the few places where I feel relieved of the bondage of having to prove myself. Mm-hmm. Like in so many other places in my life, I feel like I have to prove myself. But probably from the very first song that you and I ever wrote, it was more effortless and free and fun and without constraints of what anyone else would think. Or yeah. like I felt unjudged. Partially because it wasn't just on me, it was a a group experience. So not that, you know, that was absolving me of any responsibility, but I just, I didn't care. I was like, what we're doing is the greatest thing ever, even if it's just in this living room. And then it was like just in this small club and it, it felt real and it felt like pure love. Yeah, me too. It's like this thing where, so we have our friends, like you and I and Halal are super close. Mm -hmm. And we have all these inside jokes and the funny little voices that we do and all our weird, obscure reference points that, Mm -hmm. that you know, are the kind of the the things that make up our friendship, I guess, if you could articulate it that way. But all of a sudden, we're able to put those things together into this band 
and then we're playing and it's like we this is us now we're able to like show the bond and the friendship that we have mm -hmm. through the music in a way like it's sharing this thing that was so magical for us oh, absolutely whole, yeah i mean all that three stooges we watched and then suddenly you look over and the guitar players doing a shamp doing a shamp <laughs> yes so just um circling back a chapter to yeah, here yeah, like about the education thing like I guess when I say I had no education, it's like I never studied music formally. I never had, you know, music classes or a music teacher or anything like that, which, you know, has benefits and has losses to yeah. it. You know, like in one way, the benefit would be that I'd, I'm not going to end up sounding like anybody else because I haven't gone through the, that routine, yeah. which was a blessing. Like, you know, you end up just kind of being your truest voice in a way. But there was. A few years where you and I and Hillel and Ellen Michelsky and Jack Irons and anyone else we were hanging out with, we listened to music so religiously and and so continuously, like, you know, from the time we would get up and all weekend long and, you know, we would get that cassette track going in Hillel's car. And then living with Dondi Bastone, who had a 10,000 vinyl record collection when we were teenagers. And all we did was listen to music. And for some reason, you guys all had the most elevated taste in good music, including Dondi, who was like, you know, on the cutting edge of all cutting edges and listening to like, you know, punk and new wave and jazz and big band music and everything else under the sun, electronic music, rock and roll music, blues. And I feel like we must have accidentally clocked like, a hundred thousand hours of, of <laughs> totally. music listening. And I don't think because the other guys were studying to learn to play instruments that we listened to it any more profoundly. I mean, no, we're studying it. Like listening, it's you're not I, like saying, oh, it's study time, but you're listening. Yes. You're I, paying we, attention. I didn't realize we were in class, but we were in class. Yeah. And um, Stobau it, too. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I mean, he was dialed in. Yeah. He was dialed in. Um, and we got to dance the whole time and, and there was no like, you know, being late to class or yeah. homework to do is just yeah. listening and having fun. And I feel like we're really lucky and pretty rare for kids that we listen to such a wide variety of music. We weren't like culturally mm. stuck into any one way of thing because we weren't really like stuck into one social group or one totally thing. Very lucky. And in your case, you know, you had a a household that was jazz based. So that's, that got in, into your bloodstream. And in my case, I had my dad as my teacher, you know, in my later teens, my mom and I listened to a ton of AM radio in the early seventies, but then it was about my dad and crazy ass Blackie would like, you know, give me the brand new Blondie record, but then he would give me the brand new or the very old Benny Goodman record. Yeah. And, and he gave them to me with like, you have to hear both of these. Purposely. Yeah. Purposefully, but also like I could tell they they meant they had equal value to him. Yeah. Was that like when you moved to LA when you were 11? Did mm -hmm, that start mm -hmm. happening? It wasn't before that. It wasn't. I didn't really listen to music with him before that, yeah. um, that I remember clearly. Yeah. But when I moved into the, the tiny little bungalow on Palm Avenue in West Hollywood, he played music all the time. And even though he had zero musical ability, it would bring him to his knees. Yeah. Like, and I remember watching my dad, like listening to, you know, Stairway to Heaven and just like weeping or yeah. going into the corner and like, 
having his moment. And I was yeah. like, huh, this is, this is heavy. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. So before, and incidentally, it's, I, you know, we both left at the same time. You came from Michigan. I came from New York mm. at the same age, mm -hmm. 11 years old in 1972. And we come to Los Angeles and, um, that's a huge cultural shift for you. Mm -hmm. And you wanted to do it, which is wild to me that mm. you were that little and you wanted to mm -hmm. go move to another state. Like not knowing anybody there or anything. Well, I knew my dad and I, and I had been here a few times. Right. Or there. But you didn't know like your buddies. You didn't even know where you were going to go to school or anything. I mean, it's right. pretty, pretty unlike other kids to want to go. Want yeah. To, go, to leave what they know. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I'm imagining that musically, in what you're being exposed to and how you're being affected <clears throat> by music, and especially the way music sits in culture, because mm -hmm. your dad's like a wild party man. Mm that all of a sudden it's playing a different role and you're seeing it play a different role, right? Like Music. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, when you're a kid, sometimes you, you take in this new information so gracefully and like without too much analytical yeah. process. And so my dad would be like, oh, I'm going to go see this guy Iggy Pop up at the Whiskey Tonight. I want you to come with me. I'm like, okay. And then you get there and you're like, whoa, yeah. this, this is something special. And What year is that? I couldn't tell you exactly what year it was. I would say 77-ish. I had no fucking idea you saw Iggy Pop in 77. Uh, yeah, the Whiskey A Go-Go, just three blocks from my house. Yeah. And uh, and David Bowie is quietly singing background vocals off the side of the stage, like he was pulling at Eddie Vedder before Eddie Vedder pulled at Eddie Vedder. Yeah. Just kind of in the shadows, a little behind yeah. the curtain. Yeah. And um, and Iggy was wearing like leopard skin speedos or something like that, but just being himself, and yeah. it was so beautiful. And I didn't think about it, but it was like that was sinking in, yeah. You know, and I never thought, oh, I want to do that. I was yeah. just like, I like this. This is yeah, fun. Yeah. But yeah, I I had a a very artistic household, and um, you know an out-of-control father, and, you know, sometimes that was a, a beautiful thing, and sometimes it was a painful thing, but I got steeped. Yeah. And um, when I met you, it was pretty amazing because you would go from bus bench to bus bench with your trumpet mm -hmm. in your hand. I was like, what is this kid doing, like, carrying the trumpet around wherever he goes? And, mm -hmm. and I could tell that it was, like, your way of having a voice and just like plugging into the world. Like it gave you your outlet, your, your little purpose. And I thought that was pretty amazing. I was like, this guy's like very dedicated for, you know, such a young little. In retrospect, I was pretty sloppy about it actually, but I love playing it. I, I was distracted easily. <laughs> you were distracted easily. Yeah. Um, but you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to like practice with the orchestra. I was like, what? Yeah. Practice with an orchestra. Yeah. First chair, second chair, third chair. They're like, oh, yeah. my, my you know, Greek to me. Yeah. And then we started rolling with Tree, who was a prodigious viola player in whatever, like 11th, 12th grade in high school. And that's when the, the you know, jazz kind of took over as like one of the, the dominant things that we listen to yeah. you know i have a memory of before that when we first met mm -hmm. and we took uh our first trip to mammoth right 
and we're sitting on the Greyhound bus, like taking turns, going into the bathroom, smoking weed. And we come out and you start talking about wanting to be a singer. Mm, mm, and I'd never mm. heard, you know, it's the first time you <laughs> ever mentioned any musical mm-hmm. aspiration. So you're talking about being a musician. And um, <laughs> and I never, I was like, whoa, really? And you were like, yeah, you know, I, you know, someone like you had a teacher once that in, I think at Emerson maybe that told that you had a good voice, the timbre of your voice. Really? Yeah, I remember that. I remember that because it kind of struck with me and I was like, wow, okay. And um, I remember that trip, that trip really well. Mm. We were just getting to know you mm-hmm. and we were like sitting on a bus, stoned, like mm-hmm. spilling our guts out to each mm. other about who we were. And I, um, I don't think I knew what the word timber meant at that point in my life. Maybe you used a different word to describe the timber. But you meant, for sure you mentioned- Voice. The, the being a singer. Being a singer, yes. 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 Being a singer. And maybe like that was because you saw Iggy Pop or I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I have no if that had anything to do no, with it. No, it was before that. So I, I think I, I used to sit in this Austin Healy with my dad listening to pop songs on the radio, 73, 74. And if you ask me as adults ask children, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. My, my first choice was singer. Yeah. Just because I liked singing along with the radio. Yeah. Like, I didn't know that there was work involved or what the process was or yeah. even what that meant. Yeah. All I knew is like Kung Fu fightings on the radio and I like singing along. It's fun. It's fun. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess it was like a little quiet dream inside of me yeah. to, to be a singer. But um, I didn't think that I had a remarkable timber. But in regards to Emerson, like that, that again was part of my my invisible path of becoming a musician was, was writing words. Mm. Like I was, I love dancing and I loved writing words. And I did have a teacher at Emerson, uh, Jill Vernon, who I would later thank on the mother's milk record, um, who kept me after class and said, you know, Tony Kiedis, you're a writer. Mm. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, you're a writer. I'm like, I am. Let me go home and tell my dad I'm a writer. So that was meaningful. And then I realized like eventually that, you know, half the battle was having something to say and having a way of saying it. Yeah. So when the eventuality came around of having my all of my very, very best friends, like my only friends, my 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 family, which was you and Hillel and and Jack, and so when that moment arrived, I was like, well, at least at least I'll be able to write some words. Yeah. You know, I don't know what else yeah. I'll be able to do, but yeah. So you come to music, to being a musician from a lyrical place, mm-hmm. from thinking about words and how the syllables sound together, and mm-hmm. the you know the rhythm of them, and and just that I don't know what it is, the swag or whatever it is, the coolness of singing them, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot, like you know, Patty told me the exact same thing. Mm. When I talked to Patty. She was like, I had no idea about music or even really. I mean, I think you were more interested in music than she was. She loved it, mm-hmm. but she just cared about poetry and words. And so yeah. it was just for me, and just still, it's just about the words. Yeah. You know, I don't want to get into like your musical evolution yet, but you come in with words. And I mean, I remember Grandmaster Flash being a big thing when we started the band. Yeah, the, bi- the biggest. The biggest. The biggest. But are, are we missing any steps before then? Because well, like, when, when you... Like when I first met you and you sat me down in your kitchen and played me Blondie, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like, wow, I'd never heard anything like it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything. Right. All I knew was the rock that, you know, I didn't know anything. I knew right. nothing about rock. 
you know, I knew Hendrix a little bit, but not even really, because that was before Hillel. Hillel was the one that really played all the Hendrix. Yes. So, what is there anything between that that like may awakened you more? It was you, and it was Hillel. I mean, all of that time that we sat in cars smoking weed and listening to music, just it happened at that moment where my brain still worked and it was still a sponge and listening to Alan Holdsworth and Lenny White and like all this crazy fusion, it just like kept sinking into me and I kept yeah. feeling it and hearing it and then hanging out with Tree yeah, and watch, watching him do work on his instrument and and then, you know, you and I started going to shows. So, you know, whether it was like, you know, going to see X or whatever was happening at the Starwood, it like energetically, it just started to, you know, form inside yeah. without really knowing because I didn't have any designs on going that way. Yeah. But yeah, you and Hillel, yeah. it was like, that was... It's interesting because listening to you say this, I'm realizing that our musical education is so similar. Because mm. even though, like before that, I was playing trumpet in junior high and I'm reading stuff off a page and mm. playing in a school band, that's all my education. And seeing Walter play and hearing jazz, mm. but I didn't, I didn't know anything yet. Like I had never taken lessons. You know, I had a trumpet teacher that I got at the end of junior high, but it was more just like reading notes off a page and I liked the sound that I could make on the trumpet. Right. But I hadn't ever studied theory. I didn't know yeah. anything. And all the things you're saying, those are, I'm completely changing too. Like we're changing right together. Mm -hmm. It's the most formative time. Mm -hmm. Like sitting in, in Hillel's dots in 510, mm -hmm. blasting this shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on his couch, listening to like Steely Dan and Jeff Beck and Rush. And Rush. And, and you and I went to see Freddie Hubbard. And that was like a profound moment for me in my life. Like yeah. this dude with so much swag and confidence and knowledge and just power. Power. And, yeah, we were forming at the same time. I've, I felt like you guys were <clears throat> way more um, musically evolved because, you know, Hillel walked into his guitar teacher the same day that Jack walked into his drum teacher, like the two doors next to each other. Like, I'll yeah. see you after we learn how to play these instruments. Yeah. And, and I felt like you were, you know, studious on, on a certain level, like Hillel, yeah. Hillel teaching you songs. And it just hadn't entered my my mind that all of this stuff that we were yeah. living and experiencing and, and feeling beyond passionate about was taking me somewhere. Yeah. Like, I didn't know where I was going. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, Flea and Anthony reminisce about their first show in Nowheresville, Hollywood, which cemented their vision for what the Chili Peppers could be and, which they happen to agree, was the best show they've ever played. When I look at it now, I mean, I was definitely like wanted to be good at playing an instrument and you just weren't playing an instrument, but your dancing and singing along and paying attention was kind of on the same level in a lot of ways. Mm. It's not like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I'm just like thinking about that because I always thought like, oh, Anthony came later, we were already all musicians playing. Mm. But I'm, when I look back at it, like barely. <laughs> You know? Yeah, yeah. We showed promise, and we were kids, and we were. You guys are pretty good. Yeah, you know, yeah, you guys are pretty yeah. good. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. But so you start hearing all that music, yes, and then comes that fateful day of Grandmaster Flash. There was. I'll just, I'll just throw one little anecdote out oh, there yeah, quickly. Yeah. Like, so you were in this band, the Anthem, yeah, writing original rock music, yeah, 
uh, which I liked very much. I thought you guys were yeah. writing fun stuff. I wrote very little. Of it. Very little. That's yeah. right. That's right. But <laughs> yeah. you know, you you came late to that party yeah, and yeah. you plugged right in. And yeah. um, I don't know if you remember that you rehearsed in Jack Iron's bedroom yeah. with amplifiers and drums, and I would go in there and I would sleep while you guys would practice like the yeah. loudest. Yeah. <laughs> And I would just sleep through it, and I just felt like I was literally absorbing yeah. ev everything, every every rhythm, every texture, yeah. every emotion. You know that Halal was eking out of his messenger guitar. Yeah. So to your point, you know we we were very much on a similar trajectory. It's just you were doing yeah. it a little more, and I aspired to do it. It's what I wanted to do. It's what you I wanted was like, to I'm do. I'm going to be a trumpet player. Yeah, because I, I remember going into Jack Iron's bedroom and seeing them play with Todd Strassman, their first bass player, mm -hmm. and just being amazed that they could do it. Because mm. I had never played without a teacher and a piece of music on the stand, yes, and yes. played the notes off the paper, and um, there were just no, no teachers, no papers. So they're just playing songs, and I was just like, "Whoa!" Like it just felt so wild and free, and mm -hmm. like anything could happen. You could just yeah, if you want to just go, you can mm. just do it, and then you know, next thing you know, I'm in there with them doing it. Yes, yeah, you were, which was also very inspiring to me. Like that's my friend that I've known longer than any of these guys. Yeah, and suddenly he's making yeah. music in a band. I was like, yeah. wow, it was pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, but it was also very impressive and beautiful yeah. and magical and like yeah. There was a, it was a, a lot of chemistry going on in the, in the invisible realms of, of our. Yeah. And it was all from sitting in that 510. Right. that stuff with Halal. Like without Halal, mm -hmm. I don't think, there's no way mm. our band ever starts without mm, Halal. Of course, or any of, of this course. happens. Like, yeah. I don't think I ever start playing bass without Halal. Right. Certainly. Yeah. Who knows? You might have, you wanted, you had ideas about being a singer. You might have. Uh, it was, it was not a. A formulated concept. Yeah, but just, you never know. You you were open and free spirited. Hmm. Could have happened. I doubt it. Yeah, <laughs> I doubt it. No one else would have tolerated my remedial weirdness hmm. for so many years. Hmm. So you see, Grandmaster Flash. Um, I I hadn't seen him at that point. I I had his cassette in my little boombox, and I had a job, and uh, the message was like the number one hit in Hollywood at the time, and. It was super profound for me because a I, I love the storytelling, you know, and I love the funkiness, and I love the color of what they were doing, and it had so much power. And at a certain point, it started to dawn on me like, no one's really singing here. No one's like, you know, busting out the Tony Bennett melodies here. This is just like rhythmic storytelling to funk music, which, you know, I'd already kind of fallen in love with. And um, I like writing stories. Those guys like playing funk music. So when, the, when that catalyst moment came of Gary Allen saying, you know, let Anthony sing a song. Yeah. And everyone was like, what? Why? He's, he's not a singer. Just let him try. He's, you know, he'll, he'll be dancing. It'll be fun. And, uh... And then, like, you and Hella were like, yeah, yeah, it might, might be worth a try. And Jack was like, I'll do it. Let's, let's, let's try it out. You yeah. Know? Did, but didn't you, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, because I might mm. have the order of events wrong. After you saw Grandmaster Flash. Didn't see him. Did, hadn't seen him at that point. Oh, you hadn't seen no, him? No, went, went to see him later. Because I remember you seeing them and then coming home 
and being like, I'm going to be a rapper. And you started writing out in LA. I, I mean, memory is a funny thing. Yeah. Um, my, my memory was learning the message just kind of, you know, by singing along with it and having that moment. But I don't remember writing out in LA until the opportunity to. Yeah. Well, maybe the opportunity came. I just thought, like in my head, we're, at, we're living at, at a Wilton Hilton. Mm-hmm. I just remember you <sighs> came in and being like, I just saw the greatest show in my life last night. And it was Grandmaster Flash. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you and I went back and saw them later and went and like rapped for them. And I, <laughs> and I Yeah, no, no. Because it, it was, I saw them with Jennifer Bruce, which yeah. did not happen until after our band had started. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. God, I thought for sure you saw them, and then you came and said, "I know." And I was like, "Okay, great. Well, let's put some music to your rap." Yeah. Well, either which way, it was all happening at the same time. Yeah. You know, that was all of that moment was unfolding at the same time. Yeah, that was the moment where I realized that writing songs was the most rewarding thing you could do, or yeah. that I, that I could do is like I had, you know, tried acting. I had tried, you know, some weird like film stuff with Stobow and. None of it really gave me a sense of accomplishment or like, this is what I was meant to do with my life until we wrote a song. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, there, yeah. there was no song yesterday. And today there's a song yeah. that'll just be there indefinitely. Yeah. And I liked that, you know, Halal clearly got a, a great rush out of the new band vibe, which was very different because he was probably... You know, the little bit of stress when you've been in a band for a few years trying to like make shit happen. And, and so this was kind of like a side project where it didn't really matter. Yeah. You know, like whatever happens, happens. We don't care. It's just, yeah. we're going to go out and have fun. And it brought us back together because Hello was mad at me because I had left. Oh, right, 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 yeah, right. He hadn't talked to me. Right. He hadn't fucking talked to me for months and months and months. Yeah. Well, that'll, that'll sting. Yeah, yeah. That'll sting. Yeah. So you write the first song. Well, we write the first yeah, song. Yeah, yeah. We cook up the music. You have the yeah. words. Yes. I come up with a groove. Yeah. We sit in a room. We never practice outside of without amps in the room. Right. We just sang it. Going, yeah. We sang we the sing parts. We our parts. And then we go on stage that night and we're hit. <laughs> it was super successful for a one song set. Very successful. It's like a two and a half minute song. Short song, small crowd. Yeah. Late night. Yeah. Nowheresville, Hollywood. Yeah. And like not a prestigious location. Yeah. Very like yeah. under the radar kind of a club. But right away. Right away I would I I felt a, a great sense of success. Yeah. Like this worked a hundred percent. And it was we gotta do this again. Yeah. I mean I've never felt of all the things we've done through the years, mm-hmm. I've never felt more successful than, than, that, I did night. On that night. No, that was the most successful yeah. we've ever been, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, you know, I, we've had lots of great successful moments, but it was it was clear when we did it that it was fucking real. Yeah. You were the singer. We were the guys. We were the fucking band. It was pretty clear. And, yeah. yeah. You know, it felt like there was uh, lightning in the room. Yeah. Like, that energy was, it was so electric, and afterwards, we're like, yeah. just alive. and. It felt like, I always, like, I think about it, like, it felt like... um. All this time before that, I'd been trying, you know, trying with Anthem and what is this, and then joining Fear and wanting to be with the guy, even though I was like kind of the weird outcast young guy and they were all older and mm. all that. And I had no, you know what I mean? I was kind of a sideman almost, you know, in a way. But then for the first time after all that, like we played and it's like effortless. 
Mm-hmm. It was like we were just like God was fucking shooting through us, mm. whether we wanted to or not. We just got up there and gave it a chance to happen. Yeah. And it was pretty slinky. Yeah. Pretty slinky guitar part there. Absolutely. Um, true. True. So then it became clear in that moment that that I was part of something and I was now in the club yeah. and it was time to get down to business and yeah. when Solomon came up and said, uh, you think you guys could come back next week with two songs? Yeah. We're like, you got it. Yeah. And and we just knew that we had songs in us. Yeah. Like we're like, that that was a really easy yeah. let's go do it again and again and again and again. And it, it took over our lives, became our lives. It did. Yeah. And I felt instantly uh very grateful. Like even though I was a self-centered little maniac i did have a great sense of gratitude like to the unknown i wasn't really you know praying to anyone or anything but i felt like this is really good like i get to like roam around with a a pencil and paper and sing ideas to myself which to this day has not ceased like that was really supposed to be my job like i wake up in the morning with my 15 year old son and i sing him a song he's like what song is that and i was like i just made that up for you yeah yeah so when you first start the first song is out in la Mm -hmm. which is a song that has a series of verses all the same length Mm. and you formulate like a series of stanzas that fit differently over each cycle Mm -hmm. and that's the first arrangement that we have it's like a bunch of bunch of verses yeah there's a breakdown oh yeah 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 a couple breakdowns guitar solo Mm -hmm. But I'm just thinking, like, in terms of the way that you're okay now, you're not just writing words, you're navigating a song. So you're thinking about phrasing and rhythm mm-hmm. and to an extent, melody, even though melody hasn't really come in yet. You know, we haven't really mm-hmm. started having, you know, pretty soon we started having like singing parts, but it's mm-hmm. mostly rapping. Yeah. Mostly rapping, um, even though oftentimes in a kind of a sing song way. Yeah. Um, well, rap is pretty sing songy. Yeah. 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 But I'm just thinking, so as a musician, because at this point, there's no question, you're a musician. You're a working musician. I was getting paid. You're getting paid and to perform music as a musician with three other musicians. And we're all musicians. And what's it like? Because like you say, like you used to make this joke about uh, Idiot and the Three Geniuses mm, and stuff, because mm. we all like, come up with music and you didn't know what a C sharp minor scale was, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. But you're in a band, and so we start throwing all different kinds of music at you. Mm-hmm. Like, it's mostly like, you know, we're going on that like kind of punk funk vibe, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. But it's different. Different tempos, different feelings, time changes, feel changes in the middle of mm-hmm. songs, like Green Heaven or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It shifts all the time. And you're starting to like, just take Green Heaven, for instance, which might be my favorite song from that period of time. Mm-hmm. But what, like, what, was that like number four, number early, yeah, number five, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I remember after you wrote the lyrics, I was so proud mm. that I called up everybody I knew and like rapped them my version of your lyrics. Mm. Like I knew them, I memorized them right away, and I was like calling up Maggie Air and going back to the land of the policeman where he does what you know. What I mean the whole thing, like you know, I was so excited, but. Like that song, it has like like four completely different feels. It doesn't make any sense as a normal mm-hmm. song structure. Mm-hmm. But you start writing. So you have this one section, okay, this is the peaceful underwater dolphin mm-hmm. section. Mm-hmm. And this other section is hard, and this is the hard biting social reality. Mm-hmm. 
you know, uh, way before uh, rap music did that mostly. Mm-hmm. You're fucking doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I often, you know, I think about that. But like, how are you, are you just reacting? Do you stress on it? Do you, what is your way of like organizing your ideas into a musical form that fits the music? So definitely not stressing. And yes, reacting. Reacting in the sense of listening. Like, to me, listening to chords and bass notes and drum beats, like, it all comes with my part. It all comes with a vocal part. Like, I just have to listen carefully enough. And and often, you know, the minute you start writing, the minute you put pen to paper, you know, the words also suggest unto themselves what what the melody is or what the intonation of the word is or the phrasing or the mood you know the volume the all all of that stuff it it was never stressful it was always like if i took the time to sit down and listen it was all there yeah um you know whether it was sex rap or baby appeal or get up and jump green heaven it was like the the vocal was always there and it was just it was implied and and it's a way of reacting it's a way of like listening to the spirit of the music the energy of the music and just kind of writing from there and it was fun and it was easy and it made sense and it it always just you know our first 10 songs were written without yeah same even with mommy where's daddy like yeah. you know i i hear that that music and the vocal is there simply a matter of listening and doing it yeah you know like you so easily you gotta show up you just gotta suit up and show up and yeah that shit is there i mean it's kind of it it came so easy you know so much of it i guess has to do with our comfort with one another and our Mm. friendships and all our shared reference points Mm mm-hmm just the idea of being in a band and, you know, girls were liking us and mm. we're getting in the la-di-da column mm, and we're mm. getting popular. Oh, yeah. Like, all of a sudden, we're, like, on the Hollywood scene and we're getting popular. Yeah. But at a certain point, we have this initial success. Like, we get pretty popular in the Hollywood underground club scene pretty quickly. Yes. There's lines around the block. That's right. Yeah. And then Jack and Halal leave. Oh. So, before we make our <laughs> yeah. record deal... Before we make our first album, our two main guys bail. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we can't just rely on chemistry and friends and hanging out. Right. At that point, we have to just compose music with these guys that we don't know and make it work. And at that point, like, things are really different. Like, it's it's not as free-flowing. It's taking a little bit more work to piece it together. Yes, and it's not quite as it wasn't like you and you and Halel and I were triplets, you know, when it came to making music, and it was not like that with uh, with Jack Sherman. No, he was a wildly talented and professional musician. Yeah, but he didn't have the reference and the yeah the life and the upbringing and everything. Or Cliff. Or Cliff. Yeah. Although Cliff was a quirkier. Yeah. He fit in easier with Battle of Pure Strangeness. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, he got the strange part. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but I guess what I'm getting getting at is, like, you have to apply musical skills at that point that aren't just reliant on us just partying in a room and what we all like together in order to do it. Like, mm-hmm. did that get harder to you? Did you feel like you had to grow in order to do that? 
Not uh, let alone like record all that stuff. Yeah, there was growing happening, but it it wasn't conscious growing. Yeah, you know, it was always it's it's still the same. Yeah, like if you think about you know buckle down and and how the vocal and the bass work together, it's just me listening to the bass and and riffing, you know, with and against it. Yeah, you know, uh, true men don't. Same thing. Like you come in with this like growling thumping, you know, very aggressive, meaty, funky bass line. And I and I just basically get on that yeah. that train and, you know, get an idea for like lyrical content and, and just let it let it flesh out. And yeah. I actually went to the library <laughs> to write True Men Don't because I wanted to get inspiration from Western books. Like I wanted it to have like old timey Western Mm. sensibility to the lyric. So you're looking up Westerns? I was like looking at old Western books mm. and, and just, you know, looking for a word here, you know, like an old phrase there or something like that. But it was also just a nice place to write words. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah and back in those days, you didn't really have like a quiet home to be in. I, I don't think I had a home. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was probably like no, a no home time. Yeah. So the library was a good place. But... I remember you telling me that you were in a Cantor's parking lot when you said, True men don't kill coyotes, just ask my good man, true man, Capote. Is that right? right? That is correct. Good yeah. memory. Yeah. 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 I probably like just read a Capote novel or something. And Yeah. Have you, so like in putting <clears throat> together words like that, is there all different ways that you go about it? Because super young, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, yeah, you had a pretty rich life in terms of like, being, you know, like growing up, running around in the street and all the stuff that you've gotten into and switching cultures around and stuff. But you're still a kid and you're writing mm -hmm. a lot of words. And the words are metaphors for a lot of heavy ideas. Mm -hmm. And um, how, like, what do you, what is your approach like developing that? And I mean, because I feel like it's like you say, like, you don't study and it just comes, but you're always studying. And I see you always studying and always working and always yeah. doing stuff. So I mean, create. but it's a, I guess my approach was to not have an approach yeah. and to not be like married to an approach and, and for sure loving art and life and people and literature and movies. And, you know, a lot of stuff my father got me interested in. Yeah. That was like, that was his kind of contribution. And I think he wanted to be a successful artist and, and had all the ingredients, but you know, maybe didn't have like the friendships that I had that sort of cooked it up in a pot like gumbo. And so I, I really wasn't looking for an approach. I wasn't looking yeah. for like a methodology. <clears throat> I almost wanted to stay away from methodology because I never knew what the next thing was going to be. And, yeah. you know, sometimes procrastination, sometimes feeling very plugged in. And, but really, it's something, you know, quite. Divine happened, I feel like, when, when we got into a room to write. And it was like we were so young and smart, like our brains were just yeah. firing. And you start playing skinny, sweaty man. And I look yeah. across the room and I see the skinny, sweaty man. Yeah. And it's like, you know, let, let the cartoons begin. We just weren't going to settle for not doing it. No, no, we were, we were surprisingly <laughs> you know? driven. Yeah. For, you know, young, semi-homeless, yeah. hungry children. I think if, if you know, I think to myself sometimes that if you had had, like, music theory education, like if you were a guy that was, like, studying mm -hmm. scales and voice and all that shit, 
we wouldn't have had a chance. There's no <laughs> way. We wouldn't have had a chance to connect with people in the way that we did. Because if you're like coming at it from, I don't know, I don't even know what the right word to use is, but from not from a like, oh, well, a minor chord would work here. Mm-hmm. But just coming on to do what made sense, what feels good. It's like it gave an ingredient, like in like you're yearning to to connect that way, gives it the band an ingredient that there's no way we could have had a unique sound without it. I don't, I mean, Lord knows, but I, yeah. you know, I just, you know, and also it's like in that way, the way that, you know, we've been together for, you know, relatively long time, 40 years now and, and making records still and still trying and still trying to get better at our jobs. Like it's because of all that stuff that we, of what we didn't know. I mean, speaking of you mean, your education, not mine, but I think, you know, there's always this getting better. Like I see you, you always get better. Every record, you're better. Every record, your melodies have more nuance. They have more openness. They're more like, I remember in, like, in the beginning when you first started singing melodies, it was like, this is how the melody goes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like Jungle Man or something. Mm, mm, it was like, you mm. fucking stick to the thing and get it out as good as you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas now it's like there's inflections and movement and it's different from one night to the next and super musical. So, like, you're continually educating yourself as a musician, I guess, is my... Yeah, well, thank you. When I say idiot and the three geniuses, it's like, I think there's a lot of value in the idiot. Like, I don't say that to, you know, self-deprecate. It's, it's, you know, I take it as a compliment. Like, yes, idiot, but also, like, a, an idiot who cares and, and works and loves it and has something to say. It's like, I just like the rub of you're very musically educated now and and John is very musically educated and there's something really nice I think that happens when you combine the educated with the raw and you know that cr- creates a very unique sound and I think you know to your point there's there was something that happened with whatever amount of education you had from you know Brodsky and and high school band classes and all that with just someone who had no idea what they were supposed to do and but we knew each other well enough so that those ingredients go very nicely together, in my opinion. Yeah, and it just worked. And as far as growing and, and evolving, you know, melodically and in any other way, you know, that's just me keeping pace. It's like, yeah. you know, I'm still reacting. I'm still listening. I'm, I'm still basing, you know, the majority of what I sing and write on, on the music. You know, every now and then I'll come in with the beginning of a a song idea melodically or, or whatever, but typically it's just me listening to you guys and go, Oh my God, I know what to do on this part. This sounds like, like with Eddie. It know? sure feels itself to you right It away. feels like I just listen and I'm like, yeah. you know, this, this is what I would do here. It's like chord changes yeah. have so much emotion and, and, you know, especially that, that song Eddie that you came in with after the death of Eddie Van Halen. And it's like, you're playing these chord changes and it's, you know, based on, you know, love for music and love for an individual who gave so much. It was like, it was there. After the final break, Flea and Anthony talk about what they've learned from producers like George Clinton, Michael Beinhorn, and Rick Rubin, and how Anthony's romantic and creative relationship with Nina Hagen shaped his approach to his work. What about, um, just to backtrack, mm-hmm. would you say in some way, like starting, probably starting with George Clinton, mm. 
that having a producer was it kind of like having a teacher? Like you learn things about constructing music, constructing. How do you just how to use your voice? You know, yeah. To a good so effect? it was it was never traditional, <clears throat> even with yeah. George, and and George was a great teacher. Yeah, and part of his teaching technique was was subtle. It wasn't like a listen to me now, this is, you know, this is how it has to be. It was like just hanging out with him and fishing and him like maybe telling me a little story about how one of their songs came together and, you know, very subtle and very, it wasn't a heavy handed methodology. But mm -hmm. when we, when we went to sing, if you want me to stay, you know, that was a vocal challenge for real. And George knew that I was intimidated. Yeah. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go away for the weekend and figure out how to sing this song. Yeah. And he was like, okay, well, you know, come stay at my house and let's go fishing, yeah. which is what we did. And then he just kind of told me stories about Sly. Mm. And, you know, he wasn't like, you know, start here and go there. It was just hanging out and yeah. building my confidence a little bit. Yeah. And it was like, I kind of remember him saying, I've heard you sing a lot of stuff. You, you can sing this. Yeah. I was like, are you sure? Because yeah, there's yeah. a lot going on there. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, George was a very good teacher. And and just just by way of storytelling and you know, sharing his experience rather than right. like let's start off with the intro and yeah, yeah, you and know, double try it this way. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I remember him saying I think I have my memories right, because I think I was we're sitting with you and you guys were talking about singing and George was like said he goes, I'm not a singer. I can't sing, but I can act like I can sing. Mm. And all you got to do is act like you can sing. Right. And be a character, kind of. Like, like, yeah. Which I thought was like, wow, okay. Well, he's definitely right about finding the the character. It, it is like every every song has a bit of its own character to sing through, and that does make it a lot easier. Yeah. And George was the master. Yeah. Of characters. Yeah, just um, all kinds of weird voices. and. But cut to, he could also sing his ass off from yeah. 1950-whatever, like as a doo-wop superstar. Yeah. Like, it's such a sweet sound to his voice. Yes. It's kind of my, the sweetest, I think, maybe, <laughs> ever in the street. One of, yeah. Yeah, just yeah. the sound of it melts my heart every time I hear it. Right, just because I love him so much as a dude, I don't know. I, I feel like even... When you barely, before you knew him, you felt the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Computer games yeah. came out before you, you knew yeah. him. I don't think I knew then, like, what was him. So many singers, I didn't know. Right. Like, maybe yeah. I did. I don't, can't remember. Mm. So, and then um, we don't have to talk about any other producers if they weren't exactly helpful in that way, but certainly with Rick. When you start working with Rick, is that the learning stuff from him? Um, well, I'm, I'm, I learned something from Michael Beinhorn. Okay. I didn't want to say anything. To yeah. I mean, you know, that was a different kind of experience where, you know, he was a lot stricter, mm -hmm. a lot more strict. And we decided to cover Higher Ground by Stevie Wonder mm -hmm. and a quantum leap of, of what I was really capable of expressing at that moment. Really going from hard to hard from Sly to Stevie. Yeah, yeah. like who's, who's going to sing a freaking Stevie Wonder song and like, yeah. uh, I think I'll just go listen to the Stevie. Thank you very much. Yeah. But, you know, we, we as a band had come up with this much heavier equation of, you know, voicing that song. Actually, you and D.H. Pelegro came up with it at the Lassa Club 
where you guys just rocked that uh, instrumentally bass and drums, which had so much power. Yeah. So it you know it sat around and there was like a good idea just waiting to happen. Thank you, DH. And um, so I was like, you know, I got to find a way to sing this song. It's it's not easy. It's like out of my range and you know yeah. just like a whole different thing. And I went to sing it at the very end of the recording process and. Michael Beinhorn had me sing it like 30 times and every time was like pulling a rib out of my chest. It was so hard. And I was like, Oh, I can't do it again. I can't do it again. He's like, he's like, no, we're doing this again right now. Get back in the booth and sing that song again. I was like, Oh, my voice hurts. You know, I'm like, it's too high or whatever. And he's like, I don't care. I don't want to hear it. Get in that booth and sing it again. (laughs) And he ended up getting what he needed. Yeah. Um, for the record, and although I hated him in the moment because it was embarrassing and you know made me feel insecure and just a, a little a growing pain. Looking back on it, I was like, he knew what he was doing. Yeah, like he wasn't going to let me walk away. And with, maybe he with... wanted that anger too. Yeah, he wanted the anger. He was clearly enjoying the frustration. Yeah, you know that was part of his thing was like pushing yeah. buttons and yeah. you know getting what he wanted. Yeah, no, I have pretty good memories or I, I like what we did yeah. with him. He, you know, it was like, yeah, yeah, uh, no, me too. I mean, he made me cry on nobody weird. Mm, mm, like I was playing nobody weird. And mm, it was like, Hey, sugar, I want you to play it faster, faster. and harder and clearer. Cause I thought yeah. I kind of had of that. You know what I mean? But it, it had to be like, you know what I mean? Whenever mm. like relentless. No. And I just couldn't, I, I, I would like play a part and I just, I can't do it anymore. You know what I mean? I started crying. Mm-hmm. He's pushing mm-hmm. me. No, no, no. Anyways. I feel like he may have done the same with John. Mm. I remember Chad doing Higher Ground, like, came back. The ne- like, he had a real hard time tracking it. Right. <laughs> and came back the next day with, like, a bruised face because he got so drunk because he was so Oh, mad damn. And, like, walked into a wall or something. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he was really, he pushed us, you the know. The blood, sweat, and tears of Higher Ground. Yeah. So that that you know that's valuable teaching, yeah. and and he had a he had a very good work ethic, yeah. Michael Beinhorn, and yeah. I remember he he would say, okay, I'm I'm coming over tomorrow, and I like you know look through all the lyrics that you have in your book. Yeah. I was like, okay, and and we did like you know, we looked at behind the sun, and he's like, you got to change this around and do that. So that was valuable, I, you know, something absolutely way more down-to-earth and fun and trippy happened with Rick, you know, but it was probably our evolution as well. It's like we had become more confident as a band with John. You know, Rick Rick came in with such a, a unique and let's have fun and hang out and live in a house together. And, and he never, he never had a look of doubt in his face, Rick. Like, smiling and just making us feel like everything that we were writing was the new shit. And I had a, I had a super positive experience making blood sugar with Rick. And I guess that what I learned from him was just to trust yourself when, mm-hmm. when whatever you're writing, mm-hmm. go kill it because that's, mm-hmm. that's the deal. And just having fun. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder if you remember, when we did What It Is with Nina Hagen. Yes. So you and I write this song, mm. and then we give it to Nina Hagen. We're going, we're going back to the early 80s here. 
Yeah, yeah. This is going back to before we make our first record. Right. I don't even. Th- we. I guess we've made our first demo tape. Right. So we're in 1983. Yeah, and you and I sit up all night and make this song for Nina Hagen, and I remember seeing her go on the vocal mic with so much fucking confidence, mm. and it really did something to me. I was like, oh, it was the first time in my life. I was like, oh shit, that's what you do when you go in the studio and you pick up your instrument. You fucking go for it. You don't mm. like kind of think, is this good? You know what I mean? You don't mm-hmm. like that. I guess that's what you're saying about just, you know, being confident. But I, I just was like, in terms of like, I never saw anybody own what they were doing so much. Like she went out and she was just, you know what I mean? But with such like, like she was a god. She was a goddess. Yeah. She was a goddess and she had a lot of reasons to be confident. She was a brilliant artist, singer. Creator, pioneer, yeah, amazing, 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 amazing. You know, there is there is a reason why she exuded confidence. Yeah. That one, and was, and so we can cut it out, but is it okay to say that you had a romance? You were having a romance with her. Uh, I'm very I'm very proud and happy about romancing Nina Hagen at that time. So that makes me think then that because I felt like I learned in that moment how you needed to be in the studio. And I'm wondering if you, like, being there with me at that mm. time watching her record, if that taught you something too, or, and if all your time with her not in the recording studio, like, did she teach you about, like, what it was to be a singer in a band? And, you know, is that part of your... Yeah, again, she, oh, so she definitely had a big impact on me. You know, this was, I was 20 and 21, and she was, you know, 30, 31 or something like that. And she was a lot smarter, wiser, more experienced and and worldly. And she very much kind of took me under her wing and really tried to just impart life to me at a, a point where I was, you know, very untethered from being stable. First of all, she came to our show at the Cafe de Grand you know, whatever it was like early in our foray. And and she walked up to you and I, and she's like, you guys are going to be famous around the world. And we were like, oh, okay, sounds like that. That's cool. Yeah. What, what's your name? <laughs> you know, you're beautiful. God, I wish I could remember that. You don't remember? Oh, no. Yeah. She literally walked up at the last note yeah. and started feeling like, wow, you guys are going to be wow. the, the thing. And then I remember she... I was staying at her house, and it was probably the first musician that I ever knew that actually had a house. So I was like, oh, this girl's getting over. And she had a daughter, and she cooked good food, and the whole thing was a new experience to me. I'm like eating out of the back of a grocery store trash can or something, and suddenly she's like serving up macrobiotic food. And I'm like, oh, this is how the other half lives. And she took me into her bedroom closet. And she had a uh, like three or four leather jackets, and I was like, I never met anyone with three or four leather jackets. Like this girl's doing good, and she's like, you can you can take one of those, and I was like, oh, I gotta take a, one of your leather jackets. That's valuable. She's like, no, no, take whatever one you want. She's like, the only way I'm ever gonna keep anything is by giving it away, and I was like, a, a moment of revelation for me. Yeah. I was like, so the more you give, the more you receive and which would later also become like a a philosophy for sobriety but 
the first time I ever heard somebody, you know, we were just scrapping to get by. Yeah. And, uh, and here's this girl who's like, you know, take it. It's yours. Like, I will benefit from giving you this. And so those kind of things I learned greatly from her, you know, just how to be graceful and, and thoughtful. And, and she was a beautiful artist. So when she asked us to write a song for her, I was like, we must be doing something right yeah. if, like, an accomplished yeah. musical artist wants us to write for them. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just wondering, I feel like as we've done enough time-wise, mm. but, and, and talked a lot about the things that have shaped you, and there's always one last question that I ask, but I just don't mm. know if I should okay. ask it yet. Oh. Because I, I know that now, and I might be, like, jumping way ahead, but for some time now, You've been very studious with your voice, with your voice box, with your throat, mm. learning about the structure of it. When you started working with Ron Anderson mm -hmm. and doing warm-ups and learning mm -hmm. about how the voice works and taking care of your voice. Like yeah. You're a guy that goes out and sings on tour for months and months mm -hmm. and months. You make multiple record albums. You write zillions of songs. You, you're a really productive singer in the world. And how is that process? Like, What's that like? Like, what would you say is, like, the big thing that you've learned? You know what I mean? Like, can you talk about that a little bit? Just, like, learning about Yeah, so I, I never – I always struggled uh, on tour from the beginning. Like, <clears throat> at a certain point, you're just going to scream your lungs out and the, the little ribbons that make up your vocal cords are going to stop working. You know, they're, they're so small and smoke and screaming and not sleeping and – weird eating and cold, hot. It's like, it was always hard to maintain a good voice, but when you're younger, you can kind of repair faster. And it was probably on the Californication tour where I, I really wanted to have my vocals, you know, feel like as good as they were on the record. And a lot of great songs that we wrote for that record, songs that meant a lot to me and that I, I wanted to play well. And when I would lose my voice, it was just painful. Like, like I can't, hold up my end of the bargain. So I started looking into vocal coaches and eventually found Ron Anderson, who is a, an old school opera vocalist who had learned from old school Italian opera teachers. And they have given all of the thought to like maintaining your voice. So he started teaching me and, and basically how to warm up your voice before, you know, you go into sing and how to reset your voice when it gets out of order and just hanging out with that guy who was, you know, so experienced and versed was settling and calming and, and kind of a, a nice discipline to get into. And so now I wouldn't think of, of doing a show or even going in to record something without going through this whole process that he taught me. Yeah. If, if you're going to do something long enough, you have to figure out how to take care of the instrument. Like, you know, in the same way that you warm up for hours before we play or John, Chad, you know, it's like, your body needs to be yeah. ready to go. And, and I do want it to last, you know, for a long time. So now, now I kind of love it <clears throat> and I've damaged my voice box recently. And when Ron died, I met this, you know, this other lady who is so smart when it comes to every little muscle that works inside of your voice box that, uh, now she's teaching me how to take care of it again. So yeah, I, I love training my physical instrument to be there when I need it to be there, which, you know, also allows your creativity to be a little less confined. It's like, 
if your range is just a note bigger, like, mm-hmm. you know, you might write a different melody. And yeah. I was actually working with Amy. I don't know if you heard me making uh, yeah, heard cra- crazy noises, yeah. but... Uh, I've heard it before. I know you've heard yeah. it before, but like today, <laughs> off day, you know, out in the yeah, countryside yeah. of New Zealand, yeah, it's true. like I've I've got to I've got to take care of business because yeah. a lot of people who plan their their weekends and their lives and spent their hard earned money to Dude. come and see us play, it's like I want to give them yeah, the, the whole package. And I'm sitting in here, you know. Yes, going, you are. Yes, um, you are. Every time, like I think about like the big evolution of us as you know as a band making songs and say like you know. Under the Bridge is we have this our biggest hit ever, and it's a ballad. We never even did a ballad before, mm-hmm. or maybe something resembling mm. a ballad, but not yeah. really. Yeah, not really. Not really. And then we start like after that, then you know, like by the way, or Californication of Californication, and then by the way, it's really full of singing melody pop songs. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. pop is kind of a, a funny word to put on mm. it. It's, it became but, popular, but, but but yeah, it's popular. But they're real. Melodies from from start to finish, and they have bridges where the emotion shifts and the 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 melody shifts, choruses, bridges, verses, intros, outros, all these vocal things. And I feel you must be like, as the songs change, and as you're writing songs to like different music that say John is coming up with mm-hmm. quarterly, beautiful his his knowledge and his 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 way with chords is so good, so natural, and so tailor made for you. Mm. Is that like a thing too? Like when you do sing something that you haven't sung before, something that's different, do you feel like, oh, I've added this new dimension to my abilities because I've done something and I haven't done before? No. No. No, no. So like for one thing, I do want to talk about John for a second yeah, because he opened a, a, a new window, a huge window, um, because like you said, he tailor makes chords and guitar parts and songs that he knows that you myself and chad will resonate with and specifically you know the vocal it's like john has a absolutely uncanny ability to understand somebody else's musicality like in a deep way that maybe they don't even understand it and so when John joined and he started like, he showed me Knock Me Down and it was like full of all kinds of melodies that I really could barely get my head around because yeah. it was pretty, you know, ever-changing and a little bit complicated for me. Yeah. Not for Charlie Parker. By the time we got to like Under the Bridge and I could have lied, I, he heard something in my vocal abilities that he knew was yeah. there. And... You know, for Under the Bridge, not only did he listen to the the vocal melody and completely, like, avoid the obvious, but, like, you know, I remember watching him, like, experiment with these chords until he found the thing that made the vocal sound the best. And I was like, that was magical. But he also came over to my house, like, in the middle of the day on a whim, like, I got this thing, you know, Rick says it's kind of good. I don't know, it goes like this. And he's like, I'll be there in 10 minutes, which is also like a valuable lesson from a close friend. Like, there's no time like right now. And he did the same thing with I could have lied. I called him up in the middle of the night and I'm like, I wrote a poem. And he's like, I'm wide awake. I've got the, I've got the four track rolling. Let's do it. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure if it's a song yet or anything. He's like, oh, no. Get over here. It's yeah. a song. And those things that take, you know, 
30 minutes to do, like last yeah. a lifetime. Absolutely. So yeah, but but so but in relation to that, you, you you don't think that every time like you did that, like the first time you did knock me down, yeah, you didn't feel like you added I more did. to your arsenal, like you learned. I like, did, particularly with knock me down, because for us it was different. It's way different. I like in a million years I couldn't have written that or thought of. Yeah, that. it was different. So I remember showing Kim Jones in the trunk Ooh. of her car. I'm like, you got to hear this. This is like this is our new stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I played it for, her and it was just like. Over over the head, she just what, she's that? like, "Why? Why are you playing me this?" And yeah, I'm like, yeah. "It's such a departure from where we yeah, were." Yeah. But like with "By the Way," you know, I remember that song coming to life on Kawanga there, and yeah. a rehearsal space, yeah. and uh, I just it, it was so beautiful that you know the the yeah. chords there, yeah. and uh, and I found my my simple little melody that yeah. that fit you know, over both versions of those chords. And I didn't, I didn't stop to contemplate, you know, the dimension that it was coming from, or if it was a, a leap forward or a leap sideways or anything, it just like, that's the song. Like, I just, yeah. I felt good about the song. Yeah. Like, I was like, yeah, that's a good song. I remember in that same room, <laughs> the first time I heard you sing the chorus to the Zephyr song, Mm. And it was really different. Mm. Like that, like even though at that point it sung many melodies and songs, because mm -hmm. it's after Californication, right? And after One Hot Minute, too, by the way. Mm -hmm. And oh, no, no, it's after, right after Californication. And um, yeah, I'm on a ride, my Zephyr. I need it more. Mm. Than and, and you kind of like looked at me like, <laughs> it was almost like, like a Smith song or something. You know what I mean? Like a super soaring, flowing melody. And you were just like, well, I guess I do this now. Uh, and I, <laughs> I was like, wow, you do do that now. And it was so exciting. And yeah, I guess things just happen when they're supposed to happen. Yeah. I mean, we had been doing it for a while. And, you know, the 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 self-belief, the confidence is a big part. And um, that was another thing John, I think, probably brought, hopefully, to both of us is like, yeah. you got this. And I'm like, I do? He's like, most definitely, this is, you yeah, can do yeah. this. And I'm like, okay. If yeah. he says I can do it, I can do it. I think it shows a, a belief with him <laughs> that he's he has such a core, like I'm born to do this. Mm. This is me. Mm. And before he came back to the band this time, and I was sitting, I went to his house to talk about mm -hmm. him. I mean, he was just like, he goes, I realized that I was born to be in this band. Mm -hmm. Like, there's nothing, there's no other way. I'm born to be. It can't be, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He said the same thing to me, and that was. The point at which I knew he yeah, was correct. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> he was right to get back, make it happen. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah. there's just no getting in the way of that. Yeah. <clears throat> and thank goodness, thank goodness we found a kindred, yeah. a kindred guy who had that kind of belief and work ethic. Like, you know, that's the other thing is like, you got to show up over and over and over and over and okay, over yeah. and over and again. And get your feelings hurt and be pissed off and all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. But just on the on the credit to John thing, it's like he's also willing to turn on a dime with a new idea. Yeah, it's like he could come in with you know what he thinks is. Yeah, and if you're like, well, you know, what if I don't do it that way? What if I try it like this? Yeah. And he's like, great. Yeah, well, let's do it that way. Yeah, and quick. So I think one last question. Okay. Um, unless there's something else you want to say before I say the last uh, I just want to say that over the years, yeah. um, I have also 
my respect for Chad Smith as a musician does nothing but grow. Like when he first came through the door, I thought, you know, here is a a freak athlete who loves rock music, but he never ceases to amaze me either. And it's like, you, you know, you talk about somebody having a an arc as a, as a musician. It's like, you know, some arcs last a couple of years, some maybe five years, 10 years. Chad is like, he is a freaking out of the park grand slam. I just, I feel very lucky to play, to be a vocalist in a band where the drummer is so good and musical and ever expanding is just, he's, yeah. he's a, a force of nature. Keeps getting better. Force of nature. You got so many rhythms in his pocket. Mm. You know, I just feel like, like, and he cares as much as anyone we've ever yeah, played with. Totally. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, like as a bass player, it's like the other part of the rhythm section. I just know that anywhere I can go, mm-hmm. that I can think about going, he can come with me. Right. You know what I mean? In terms of like, if we're going to lean back the rhythm, push your head of the rhythm, sit right in the center of the rhythm, yeah. go into a weird salsa thing all of a sudden, mm. whatever the fuck. Mm. Which is kind of why we hired him. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It was like, hmm, that's the first guy we've seen ever yeah. that, you know, could yeah. go the way of the flea. and Yeah. We could have gotten that little kid from Chicago. Mm. He was a cool kid, but he, he didn't have the, in my opinion, he didn't have the scope of a Chad Smith. Yeah. You know what's funny is that <clears throat> guy ended up when we were playing with Nate, that Nate had been playing with him in Chicago, and he was very big into like the experimental jazz scene in Chicago. Oh, like, and, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I really had that like, uh, Nate is a badass. Yeah. Great musician. Great musician. So, okay. Should I go for the final question? Yeah. <laughs> the final question, that's how I end all these things, is um, it's a simple question. Mm-hmm. It's just mm. um, to, you know, this podcast being about someone's educational, or whatever mm-hmm. you call it, mm-hmm. their journey into becoming mm-hmm. a working musician in the world. What advice do you have for any young person starting out who wants to have a life playing music? My advice to them is to have a life playing music. Come rain or shine, come success or failure, just have a life playing music. Like, wake up and and work hard and play music and push yourself and find like-minded people to do it with and just never stop. Like, if, if that's what you want, like, there's, there's no guarantee of, quote-unquote, success, but there's always a guarantee of self-fulfillment, which is really the success, like, it's probably easy for me to say coming from someone who, you know, pays the rent doing what he loves to do. But I will say that when Flea and I started the Red Hot Chili Peppers, we did not make money. And we thought that we were the most successful band in the state of California by a long shot. And, you know, every now and then we would collect $40 after a show and like split it four ways. But we we thought we were we thought we had reached the promised land so it really wasn't about the money it was about the experience and knowing that you were you know reaching for new places and you know that biggest biggest payday in the world is writing music <laughs> writing something that like you woke up yesterday didn't exist you went to sleep today as should exist forever and um uh, I mean, my advice is to have a life playing music. Right. Look at Tree. Tree has a life playing music. 
without ever considering any other one. The, no, no other considerations yeah. and just fulfilled. Like you look at him when he picks up his axe and he's like, Buddha. That's all he does. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Steve. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Anthony Kiedis. Thank you for listening to This Little Light, a podcast about music education that exists to serve the Silver Lake Conservatory of Music, a nonprofit music school based in Los Angeles, California. This Little Light is a presentation of Cadence 13, executive produced by Flea, Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13, and parallel partners Ken Cow, Nicholas Gonda, and me, Jocelyn Florence. The show's lead producer is Julia Smith, with editing and engineering by Ryan Martz. Our show's original theme music is composed by Flea himself. Special thanks to Chris LaSalle, Alex Barron, Ian Turner, and Jennifer Ray and her entire team at the Silver Lake Conservatory of Music. Listen and follow This Little Light, a presentation of Cadence 13, on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>